0: One of my favorite spots in Israel is the mountain brook of Caesarea Philippi. This place is beautiful. It is so refreshing. In fact, once you visited visited it, there will be little wonder in your mind why Jesus chose it as a site for his getaway retreat with his disciples. You remember it was at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus turned to the disciples and he asked them a question. He said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Of course, they came back with all of the popular opinions at the time. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. And then Jesus dropped that vital question. He asked them the most important question that any of us will ever be asked. He says, but who do you say that I am? And that is where the rubber meets the road. That's what decides every man's eternity. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And of course, Peter had the right answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But notice the disciples' earlier comments. Apparently, many of the Jews at the time had mistaken Jesus for Jeremiah. They said, some say, Jeremiah. And when you study the book of Jeremiah, you realize how much the two men had in common. In many ways, the life of Jeremiah was a type of the ministry of Jesus. Here are a few ways. Both had the rare combination of toughness and tenderness. Both ministered just before before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Both were a priest and a prophet. Both were accused of political treason. Both addressed the corrupt practices of the temple and foretold its destruction. Both wept over Jerusalem and loved God's people dearly. Both were forsaken by friends and were rejected by their own hometown. Both were tried, persecuted, and imprisoned. Both angered the priests of their day. Both enjoyed a peaceful early ministry but encountered opposition later on. And the similarity we find here in chapter 16 is both men never married. Chapter 16 begins with instructions from the Lord that I'm sure shocked a good Jewish boy like Jeremiah and probably upset his Jewish mother. The word of the Lord also came to me saying, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. You see the goal of every Jewish male was to marry and to sire children that would grow up to carry on the family name. And Jeremiah had looked forward to marriage his whole life, but now God tells him that this is a pleasure that he's to forego. And he goes on to tell Jeremiah why. You see, tough times are going to come. The city will be besieged by ruthless warriors. Women will be raped. Mothers will be left childless. Wives will be made widows. And God wants to spare Jeremiah the personal pain and heartache of losing a wife or a child. It's enough for him to grieve for the nation. He does not need to suffer a personal loss of a family member. And so... The Lord tells Jeremiah not to take a wife. It's interesting to compare this with Paul's observation about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You know, he too had the same attitude. He said, he who is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. (laughs) I run into this problem sometimes when I'm at my office and I'm studying late at night. And if I were unmarried, I could just go on into the wee hours of the morning and there'd be no repercussions whatsoever. But because I'm married, I not only have to care about the things of the Lord, I also have to be accountable to my wife. And so when I come in late at night, I hear it and catch it, and rightly so. Because the married man has more to be concerned about than just serving the Lord. He has to also make sure that he serves and ministers to his family. This is why Paul, though, chose not to be married. Because he too ministered in difficult times. Can you imagine being married to the Apostle Paul? Honey, where you at? Well, I'm shipwrecked right now, sweetheart, but I'll be home in a few months. Can you imagine? Paul, how was your day today? Well, I got beat 39 times and stoned. and A married man has to care for his family, and thus he's distracted and vulnerable in ways that an unmarried man is not. And that's why Paul says that if you don't need to be married, <clears throat> count it a blessing and spend your time serving the Lord. Jeremiah was to forego the le- legitimate pleasures of married life because God was about to destroy Jerusalem And scatter his people. But in chapter 16, the chapter closes with a promise of restoration. God will not be angry with his people forever. After this judgment, he will gather up the Jews and return them to the land. In fact, God will send out fishers of men. And just as we are commanded to go out and to gather the lost to Jesus... When Jesus returns in the last days, he'll send out men to gather the Jews back to the land of Israel. In fact, God will make a name for himself among the Gentiles. He'll no longer be called the Lord who brought Israel out of Egypt into a new land, but the Lord who brought his people out of the north and back to their own land. And so the Jews will be gathered. They will be returned to Israel. Chapter 17 contains two powerful statements about the depravity of man. Verse 1 says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved. And as I mentioned the illustration this morning, I'll never forget when Zach was given his pocket knife by my dad. And he proceeded to use that pocket knife to carve his name into the furniture at the house. You know, it's one thing to draw on the walls. It's another thing to whittle away at your parents' furniture. That's a little bit more serious. And this is the human dilemma, though. Our sin has done more than just splashed paint up on the wall. No, there are ruts of rebellion that run down into our hearts. Our sin has carved deep-rooted sin into our life, into our very nature, and a little superficial whitewash won't help. The answer for a wicked heart is a new heart. The second statement is in verse 9. There we're told the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the phrase desperately wicked there can be translated sick beyond cure or impossible to repair. And that's why the Bible never tells us to clean up our own lives. The solution to sin is to give your life to Jesus and let him clean it up. The great physician is a heart surgeon who specializes in transplants. He will cut out that old sinful nature and he will replace it with a new nature that loves God and that loves other people. And the goal of the Christian life is not reformation on our part. It's God's transformation. And that's what he wants to do when he enters our lives. Between verses 1 and 9 here in chapter 17, Jeremiah compares the person who puts his trust in human strength and ingenuity with the person who puts his trust in God. And verse 7 and 8 sound a lot like Psalm 1. If you read it, you'll see the similarities. The end of chapter 17 encourages the nation Judah to keep the Sabbath day holy. In chapter 18, Jeremiah pays a visit to the house of the potter. Throughout scripture, God uses the potter as an example of his dealings with his people. As the potter molds the clay, God molds our life. And the clay has no say what the potter will make him. His job is to simply be pliable and compliant and impressionable. My youngest son was given the middle name of clay. Because it was my prayer that the Lord would make him moldable and impressionable, just like soft clay. I want to see God take his life and fashion his life according to God's will. And Jeremiah sees the potter working on a piece of clay. It's turning on the spindle. But he doesn't like what he sees. And so he takes it and he hammers it down and he begins to reshape it into another vessel. And here's the point of the parable. The potter can change his mind. And he can shift directions with the clay without the clay's permission or approval. The clay has no say. And this is what has happened with Judah. God had intended to build her up, to plant her, to make her great. But because of her sin, he has shifted directions and he has chosen now to tear her down. In chapter 19, God speaks through a cracked pot. And if you've been coming to Calvary Chapel for any length of time, you're aware that God can indeed speak through a cracked pot But this is literally a cracked pot. You know, studies show that you remember about 10% of what you hear, but you remember 50% of what you see. That's why we use the PowerPoint overhead. That's also why God instructed the prophets to often use these visual aids. They would act out a spiritual skid in order to teach a vital lesson. And this is what we have going on here in chapter 19. Jeremiah takes a pot or a jar. And he calls the nation's leaders and priests to the valley of Hinnom. Now, this was the valley just outside the city's gates. You might call it the spiritual red light district because this was the center of the city's idolatry, their spiritual adultery. And in verse 5, God describes the child sacrifices that were being made to the evil idol Baal. And to describe how appalled he is at Judah's sin, God notes that he gave no specific command against this practice. In fact, he never thought they would stoop that low, that he even had to guard against them committing this sin. Now that's interesting. God is omniscient, of course. He knows all things. But here he says that this never came into his mind. How do you reconcile that? Well, when he says that this evil never came into his mind, he's using a literary device. It's called an anthropomorphism. Or it is the ascribing of human characteristics to non-human entities. We do this often in poetry when we talk about the trees clapping their hands. Trees don't clap their hands, but... But that's a great way of saying that, you know, they're blowing in the breeze and they're, they're making a rustling sound and so forth. And, and oftentimes in the scripture, God will be spoken of in human terms. That doesn't make him human. He is above human. He is divine. But in, in a way so that we can relate to him in a way that makes a point, often uh, these types of literary devices are used. And so God speaks as if he is a man simply in order to get across to men how appalled he is at their conduct. Jeremiah tells the leaders of the nation that God will bring a catastrophe, that the valley where they are standing at that moment will not be called the valley of the son of Hinnom. Instead, it will be called the valley of slaughter. And God's hammer of justice is about to fall. And his description of what's going to happen is grisly and gruesome. Jerusalem will be surrounded. The people will be so hungry they'll eat their own babies to survive. And in the end, the birds will feed on their dead carcasses. And after his sermon, Jeremiah takes this jar and he shouts out, Even so, I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot be made whole again. And he threw it down on the stone walkway there and it crashed. And that loud sounding crash was just the exclamation point he needed. To put the emphasis on his sermon. Now, Jeremiah's sermon in chapter 19 jarred the leaders of Judah. And they decided to crack back. And so Pashur, the captain of the temple guard, arrested Jeremiah. (coughs) Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten probably with 39 lashes, and then we're told he was thrown in the stocks. And in verse 2, the Hebrew word translated stocks means to cause distortion. Apparently, these stocks were not just chains or handcuffs used for restraint. They were designed to inflict pain. They were a means of physical torture. Imagine. All Jeremiah wanted to do was to deliver the message God had put upon his heart. But now he's on the rack. He's being stretched. He's being tortured for telling the truth. You've got to hand it to Jeremiah. For all his suffering, he never altered his message. He was faithful to speak God's truth, even when it cost him his ease and his security, and his prosperity. In fact, before Pashur releases Jeremiah, he goes and he warns Pashur of the coming judgment on him and his friends. He gets right in his face. Rather than cause him to back down, the persecution Jeremiah suffered only caused him to grow bolder and braver. This is always the case when believers in Jesus are persecuted. The enemy's attempts to shut us up only backfire. For when we are pinned against the wall, that is when we are forced to trust the Lord. And guess what happens when we do? His power comes. And He energizes us. And He intensifies our boldness. And we speak that much bolder for the sake of Christ. I like what Augustine wrote of the early Christians. He said, The martyrs were bound, imprisoned, scourged, racked." burnt torn butchered and they multiplied the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church if you've ever been if you've never been persecuted for the sake of jesus understand you will be it's a promise it's not one of those promises you like to clip out and put on your little refrigerator you know and Or maybe on your mirror, you know, so you'll see it in the morning when you brush your teeth. But it is a promise. And and this is what it says. Second Timothy 3 verse 12 promises us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It will come. But understand, God will give you the strength in the midst of it. God will give you the boldness and the bravery to overcome it. And to be that light and witness for Jesus. Understand, guys, when we get to heaven, God is not going to look us over for medals. God is going to look us over for scars. My favorite poem is by Amy Carmichael. And in the poem, Jesus speaks to us. Have you no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear you sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail your bright ascendant star. Have you no scar? Have you no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer, spent. lean me against the tree to die and rent. By ravenous beasts that encompassed me I swooned. Have you no wound? No wound? No scar? Yes, as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But yours are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Trust me, Jeremiah had his share of scars, and you will too, if you dare to follow Jesus Christ in this wicked world. And that's what leads to Jeremiah's resignation. Yep, you're right. He resigns, or tries to. He's been through a lot, he's tired. He's ready to give it up, man. This is not what he bargained for. He turns in his resignation in verse 9. He says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. That's it, man. It's over. Here are my keys to the prophet's bathroom. I've had enough. Jeremiah is hanging up his prophetic cleats. It is time to retire. Reminds me of the pastor who read his letter of resignation one Sunday morning. And afterwards, this little old lady came up and she was sobbing and she was weeping. And, you know, he tried to comfort her and he said, ma'am, don't worry. The church board has promised to find a new pastor far better than your current pastor. And that's when she shook her head and she said, yeah, that's what they promised last time. (laughs) Jeremiah wanted to quit. He'd made up his mind to quit. He was determined to quit. But he just couldn't quit. He got home that night. He decided to get out his Bible. And he thought he'd read a short passage before he went to bed. And that's when he said, But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. As he turned the pages of Scripture, his passion returned. His vision returned. He remembered why he had gotten into the ministry in the first place. Guys, nothing stirs our spiritual vision. Nothing inflames our motivation like God's power-packed Word. It was D.L. Moody who said, I know the Bible is inspired because it inspires me. It's amazing how Jeremiah's attitude changed. In verse 11, he remembers how the Lord is with him. He knows the people need the truth. He's heard their mockings and his stubbornness and their ridicule. And before long, he comes full circle. The reasons he got frustrated in the first place are the very reasons he returns to the job. It's kind of like, you know, Lord, I'm just so frustrated. These people, oh, Lord, these people, I just can't take it anymore. These people, they're so dense, and, and they just don't know it. And, Lord, they need your word. And, and Lord, your word's burning in my heart. And Lord, somebody needs to take them, your word. And, and, and Lord, I'll, I'll go. I'll do it if you'll send me. And The guy just come full circle. He signed right back up for the very task he tried to resign because God's word got a hold of him. Sometimes, even a prophet's perspective can get clouded. Ministry can be taxing. And pressures can distort reality. And that's why a pastor needs to maintain a case of divine heartburn. And only God's word will keep our hearts aflame for God. A different paschur appears in chapter 21. Apparently, the word paschur may have been the name of an office Rather than just a personal name, because it comes up over and over again, and each time it's the son of a different person, sort of like Caesar or Pharaoh or Mr. President. It's an office, not necessarily the a, a personal name. That this Passover comes to Jeremiah on behalf of King Zedekiah, the last of Judah's kings, and Zedekiah wanted Jeremiah to ask the Lord to deliver the nation from the Babylonians, but. Jeremiah has bad news. The Lord is against Judah. And he will use the Babylonians to bring judgment. And Jeremiah's advice to him is a tough pill to swallow. He says they will escape the harshest judgments if they don't fight against the will of God. Instead, they just need to defect. They need to go ahead and surrender to the enemy because their cause is hopeless. That would be a tough message to swallow. Understand, though, a repentant heart doesn't buck the consequences of its actions. It submits to the fallout. And if they had truly been repentant, they would have submitted to the consequences of their sin. Jeremiah chapter 22 contains God's judgment on the kings of Judah during the time of Jeremiah. He mentions Josiah, first of all, Jeremiah's godly friend. Then he mentions his son, Shalom, or Jehoahaz. Also, he mentions Jehoiakim, another son of Josiah, and his son, Jeconiah, or he's often called Coniah. I like to call him Coniah the barbarian because he was a wicked king. All of Josiah's descendants failed to serve the Lord and were punished by God. This Jehoahaz was taken prisoner to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim, who came after him, was led off to Babylon in bronze chains. And Coniah was taken prisoner to Babylon only after Nebuchadnezzar had slaughtered his sons before his very eyes and then plucked out those eyes so that the last thing the man saw was the death of his sons. That was Jeconiah. And this chapter, chapter 22, sort of paints you the gory history of their idolatry and their sin. There is a verse, though, that's interesting. If you were a Jew waiting on the Messiah, verse 30 would be a shock to you. God places a blood curse on the family of Jeconiah so that no son of Jeconiah's will sit on the throne of David. A king by the name of Zedekiah succeeds Jeconiah, but he was his uncle, not his son. For centuries, this curse confused the rabbis. How could the Messiah, the future king, be of the family of David and still be a member of the royal succession of kings? You see, the crown passed from father to son. And since Jeconiah's son had the blood curse, since his son would never sit on the throne, according to the rabbis, God had a problem. And Here's how God solved the problem. According to Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, was a descendant of Jeconiah. Of Solomon, of David. Thus, Jesus was the successor in the royal line of kings, but since God was his father, he did not have the blood curse of Jeconiah. He received the royal right without the blood curse. But the prophecy said that the Messiah had to be David's blood relative. That's where Luke's genealogy kicks in. For Jesus' mother, Mary, was also a descendant of David, but not through Solomon and Jeconiah, but through David's other son, Nathan. And thus Jesus was David's natural heir, his blood heir, through Mary, and his legal heir through Joseph. And thus God solved the problem. Jeremiah chapter... 22 God is so wise. A lot of times you think he's stumped, but he's not. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's so wise. We can trust him. David's heir is also the subject of chapter 23. This chapter looks beyond the scattering of the Jews to their regathering in the end times. In that day the Lord will raise up a branch or a descendant of David's family tree to rule over all the earth. And Jesus is that king. And Jeremiah here calls him Jehovah to Sidcanu, or the Lord our righteousness. For Jesus is the only way for a person to be and stay right with God. He is our righteousness. In the remainder of this chapter, Jeremiah warns the people of the false prophet who boasts of his dreams and his visions and is all the time talking about his supernatural revelations. Jeremiah is unimpressed. He says in verses 28 and 29, The prophet who has a dream, let him tell his dream. And he who has his word, let him speak my word faithfully. For what is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. In other words, what are all these dreams to God's word? It's like the chaff to the wheat. On occasion, God does speak through a dream. But dreams are nowhere near as dependable as the word of God. And always check the dream against the doctrine. You see, dreams, according to God here in Jeremiah, are like the chaff. The dreams are like empty shells, but the Word of God is the whole wheat. It's right here. And whenever a false teacher tries to intimidate or impress you with a dream that conflicts with the Scripture, just reply, Ah, shucks. That's just shucks. That's just chaff. I'm basing my faith on the whole wheat word of God right here. You got to be careful of dreams. They can come from God, but they can also come from Satan. And sometimes they can come from last night's pizza. It reminds me of the woman who said I dreamed last night of eating spaghetti and when I woke up my pajama string was gone. <laughs> hey, what are the dreams? What are the chaff? The chaff? What are the shucks in comparison with the glorious whole wheat word of God? Jeremiah was a prophet. He loved his he was a prophet and he was a patriot. He loved his country. And that's why God's message was so difficult to deliver. For God said that his judgment on this nation was inevitable. And thus a repentant attitude was one that would cooperate with the consequences of their sin. And in essence, God told the people not to butt the Babylonians. To go ahead and surrender. They were God's instrument of judgment. In chapter 24, God uses more visual aids. Jeremiah finds two baskets of figs outside the temple. One basket is full of choice figs, ripe, juicy figs. The other is full of rotten figs. And God tells Jeremiah that everyone who submits to the Babylonian capture will turn out like a good fig. Things will go well. Things will turn out well for them. But for those that try to fight against God's will, they will turn out like the rotten figs. Hey, go figure. After they learn their lesson, God will give them a new heart. God will bring them back to the land, he says. But if they fight against the will of God, they'll suffer severely. They'll be deteriorated. They'll rot like the bad figs. You know, it's okay to ask God to spare you from the consequences of your sin. And at times he will. It is proper to plead for mercy. But once the die has been cast. And once God's punishment and discipline has been ordered. The degree to which you submit to that discipline. Is the degree to which you are truly repentant. Try to bypass the judgment. Try to bucket. it. Try to fight against it. Try to shirk it or slip past those consequences, and you'll only make matters worse. That was Jeremiah's message to Judah at the time. You see, a repentant person wants to turn from his sin, and so he's ready to learn even from God's discipline when God chooses to administer it. It helps, as we go through Jeremiah, to realize that the book is not in chronological order. And so chapter 25 comes about 18 years before the prophecy of the figs in chapter 24. And the contents of this chapter are provocative indeed. Verse 9 was shocking to Jewish ears, for God here refers to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as my servant. This was the name that God used for his own people, Israel. Now he uses the same name for an uncircumcised, idol-worshiping, egomaniac like Nebuchadnezzar. In Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he was pursuing his selfish ambition. But in the larger scheme, God was using him as an instrument of divine judgment. When it's over, God will turn and punish him to prove it. Which points out another lesson. Just because God uses you, like he did Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't mean he approves of what you are or what you do. God in his sovereignty can use and will use anyone to fulfill his purposes, but that doesn't necessarily mean he condones all of that person's methods or motives. Never forget, God used a donkey. Don't take consolation in the fact God's using me, you still could be in serious error. Verse 11 is significant because it lays out the timetable of Judah's exile. They They will remain captive in Babylon for 70 years, Jeremiah predicts. And that is exactly what happened. The first exiles were carried off to Babylon in 605 B.C., In 536 B.C., 69 years later, the Persians conquer Babylon. And the first decree issued by the new Persian emperor Cyrus is to allow the Jews to return to Judah. And so the first exiles come home in 535 B.C., exactly 70 years later, just as Jeremiah predicted. The rest of chapter 25 describes how God, through Nebuchadnezzar, will judge Judah's neighboring nations. The point being, if he judges his own people, he'll certainly judge them too. Chapter 26 records a second showdown in the temple. It was during the feast, when Jews from all over Judah were visiting the temple, that Jeremiah crashes their party. He calls them on the carpet for their hollow devotion. They are playing at religion. They don't seek God, at least not to the point of obedience. And Jeremiah warns them that as a result, God will topple their temple and he will bring down their house of hypocrisy. And Jeremiah is bold. He makes no attempt to water down or dilute God's word to these people. In verse 2, God tells him, do not diminish a word. That's good advice for you and me. Hey, We need people today who are willing to tell it like it is. We need people today who won't sugarcoat it, who won't be afraid of offending, and who will present God's word without diminishing a word. It's been said some people water down the Bible to the point where if it were a medicine, it wouldn't heal, and if it were a poison, it wouldn't harm. We all need to be straight shooters. But of course, if you're a straight shooter... Beware, because you're going to get shot at. And that's what happens to Jeremiah. His boldness gets him arrested by people who want to kill him. And in verse 11, a civil trial convenes. In verses 14 and 15, Jeremiah tells the tribunal, in essence, kill me if you want, but know for certain you'll be guilty of innocent blood. I've only told you what God sent me to say. As it turns out, cooler heads prevail. And some of the priests recall the example of the prophet Micah. He delivered the same message that Jeremiah did a hundred years earlier. But rather than kill Micah, the people of Hezekiah's day heeded his warnings. And these priests suggest that that's what they should do with Jeremiah. They need to repent and heed his warnings. And it proves that Jeremiah at least won the respect of some of the priests. The word duel means a war of two. And that's what we have in chapter 27. A duel between two prophets. Our hero, Jeremiah, and the false prophet, the villain, Hananiah. Now here's what happens. It's an incredible story. God tells Jeremiah to make several yokes the wooden harness that was used to steer the oxen as they plowed the fields. And he sends a yoke to each of the kings bordering Judah. And this yoke is no joke. It sent a choking message. For each king would be harnessed by the Babylonians and forced to serve Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah likewise brought this same message to his own people Judah. Apparently, there were false prophets at the time who were predicting that God would deliver them. Already, the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem and had stolen many of the temple treasures. And these false prophets were predicting that God would turn the tide. And in very short order, all of these stolen vessels would be returned to the temple. Jeremiah says, not so. Not only will the vessels not be returned anytime soon, but that the treasures that are left will likewise be stolen and taken to Babylon. In essence, Jeremiah is saying, hey, it's not going to get better before it gets much, much worse. And that's when the false prophet Hananiah enters the picture. And as Jeremiah delivers his message, he's wearing this wooden yoke around his neck as a visual aid. In a daring, dramatic maneuver, he gets upstaged by this Hananiah. Where Hananiah runs over and he breaks the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck. And he shouts out, God will break the yoke of Babylon and in two years bring back the temple treasures. It's a lie. It won't happen. But Hananiah has presented his lie with such dramatic flair. With such boldness that the people leave impressed. He has upstaged, he has shown up Jeremiah. One word of warning never be impressed by a person's style. Never. A pastor, a speaker, a preacher, a prophet can be so passionate, he can be so powerful. Oh, he is so funny. He is so articulate. And the whole time be spouting nothing but lies. Never be impressed by his style. Always listen to his substance. I've heard preachers that were so good at saying nothing. It was amazing. They held you spellbound and when it was all over you said, What was that all about? Never be impressed with style. Always look for substance. What are they really saying? Now, after Hananiah's demonstration, Jeremiah just walks away. He's been upstaged. He's, he's, he's been shown up in a sense. And, and he just walked away. I'm sure people were laughing at him. I'm sure they were mocking and ridiculing him as he left. Jeremiah walked away with yoke all over his face. He had been outperformed. And apparently, that was okay with Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's example teaches us another lesson. Our job is to simply declare the truth. God doesn't expect us to look good. He doesn't expect us to defend ourselves. He doesn't expect us to outperform anyone. All He expects us to do is to be faithful to the message He's given us, and He will take care of us. Of the messenger. And that's exactly what happens in this story. God sends Jeremiah back to Hananiah later. And Jeremiah confronts him and tells him that he is speaking lies. God will not bring back the temple treasures from Babylon in two years. Rather, within that year, Hananiah will die. And guess what? Two months later, Hananiah is pushing up daisies. He's dead. It's interesting, Hananiah dies in the seventh month of the year or around the Feast of Tabernacles, which means he died while everyone was in Jerusalem for the feast. So that in the end, everyone saw that Jeremiah was vindicated, Hananiah was refuted, and God's word was confirmed. And after all he said and done, the yoke was on Hananiah. And it should teach us a lesson. Trust the Lord. Speak the truth. God will take care of vindicating the message and protecting the messenger. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar took a few of the royal family prisoner. You'll recognize their names. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. In 597 B.C., When King Jeconiah was taken prisoner, Nebuchadnezzar took other Jews to Babylon also. You'll recognize the name, the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 29 is a letter from Jeremiah back to the exiles who are living in Babylon. And Jeremiah's message made the real estate agents happy. For in essence, he tells the Jews living in Babylon to go ahead and settle down to buy their homes, to plant their gardens, to make themselves at home because despite what the false prophets are telling them, they're going to be Babylon bound for 70 years. Those who accept the reality will make the most of a bad situation, but those who buck against the will of God will be like those rotten figs that we talked about earlier. It's interesting, but chapter 29 also applies to the church, to you and me. For when you think about it, we're in a similar situation. Our home is heaven. But like it or not, for the moment, we're living as an exile in a foreign land. Unlike the Jews, we don't know when we'll be rescued, but it could be a while. And that's why Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, occupy till I come. That's an important command. Because what Jesus is saying there is that, yes, I could come back at any moment, but I may not come back for a while. And so develop a daily routine. Get a life. Build a home. Start a business. Get involved in the society in which you live and seek to serve me. Don't move off on mountaintops somewhere just to wait on the Lord's return. Occupy till I come. Make a difference where you live. Develop Long term relationships. As someone said, live as if the Lord is coming back today, plan as if He's not coming back for a thousand years. I think that's some good advice for us. In the end, though, after the 70 years, God will bring the Jews home to Judah. And God promises in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 29 For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. What a glorious promise. And it applies to all God's people, even you and me. God's thoughts toward us are always full of peace and hope and future blessing. God is like any good parent. He would never wish harm or evil on his kids. He only wants what's best for them. This means we can trust God's intentions. That no matter how difficult our circumstances become, God has a plan that will culminate with blessing. He says too in verse 13, And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I love to play hide and seek with a two-year-old. <laughs> Often, that little tot will hide right out in the middle of the room. You know why? Because the point of the game to him is not to hide, but to get found. Because getting found is a whole lot more fun than hiding by yourself. This is God's attitude. God has no fun hiding. God wants to be found. God wants you to discover him. And all he's waiting on is for you to seek him with your whole heart. If you'll just seek God, he'll see to it that he gets found by you. He wants you to find him. He's just waiting on you to seek him with your whole heart. A.W. Tozer once wrote, It's not that we don't want God, we do. We just want other things more. Do you want God enough to seek his face with all your heart? If you do, he'll be found. Imagine you've been unable to leave your city for 18 months. Despite the rationing of the food, it's almost depleted. In fact, this morning when you were putting the clothes on the kids, you noticed that their ribs were starting to show. You've become numb to your own hunger pains. You keep cutting down in order to feed them. Sanitation has become impossible. The garbage is piled high up on the street. The sanitation crews have stopped working. Rats are a problem. Some are as big as dogs. Disease has become epidemic. You're concerned about your youngest because he has an uncontrollable fever. Every time you go to the temple, the priests and the prophets keep saying, don't worry, be happy. It's all going to pass. But you wonder. You remember what that prophet Jeremiah kept saying? He was singing a different song. He was saying that it wasn't going to pass. That things were going to get worse. But now he's been thrown in prison. You haven't heard him for a while, but you're frightened. You're really scared now because the army outside the gates, you've noticed they're building ramps up against the wall so that their troops will flood over the over the top of the wall. And you notice this is this is they're they're being they're succeeding. I mean, these ramps are getting taller and taller. And you, and you figure any day now, they're going to storm the city. You're beginning to hear their threats and their insults from outside the walls. And you have heard what they do to their captives. You've heard the stories. These people are ferocious. And the future for you and your neighbors looks very, very grim. Now, this was the situation in Jerusalem when Jeremiah takes his pen and writes chapters 30 through 33. And it's in the midst of this gloom and doom scenario that Jeremiah looks to the future and he finds hope. Because in the midst of the failure of the old covenant, God gives to his people a new covenant. Chapter 30 looks beyond the current crisis or what verse 7 calls the time of Jacob's trouble to a day of rest and quiet for the people of Israel. A situation that the Jews have never known, even to this day. It's obviously looking to the future. This last verse in the chapter is key. It says, in the latter days, you will consider it. The phrase latter days points to the end times before the return of Jesus. And I believe chapters 30 through 33 have a double reference. Yes, the chapters describe the crisis of Jeremiah's day and the deliverance that followed, but they also pose a similar scenario for the end times. In fact, the term, the time of Jacob's trouble used in this chapter has become synonymous as a term for the great tribulation. For in the end times... Not the Babylonians, but the Antichrist will surround Jerusalem. He'll scatter the Jews around the world, but Jesus will come to her rescue and bring her back to the land. Jeremiah 31, verses 3 through 4 are incredible verses. Here the Lord speaks. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you. And you shall be rebuilt. And catch this, what he calls them. O virgin of Israel. You remember, earlier in the book, Jeremiah referred to God's people as a whore. As a spiritual adulterer. And now he calls her, O virgin of Israel. And yet this is a testimony of how far God will go when he extends his mercy and his grace. You know, when God forgives... He really does forgive. His forgiveness is so complete that once forgiven, God treats you as if you had never sinned. That's what it means to be justified, to be treated just as if I'd never sinned. So God could look at you. Though you've gone to bed with the world, though you've committed spiritual adultery, though you've not been faithful to God, and yet when you're forgiven with the blood of Jesus, God can look at you and say, rejoice. O oh, virgin daughter of Israel. That's glorious. It was Faber who wrote the poor prayer. How thou can think so well of us, yet be the God thou art, is darkness to my intellect, but sunshine to my heart. Don't you agree? It's hard to fathom such mercy and such grace. I don't understand how God can be so gracious, but I'll rejoice in it forevermore. Verse 10 predicts the future regathering of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. The regathering that we're seeing in our day is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, today there are 17.4 million Jews in the world and only six and a half million live in Israel. Still today, more Jews live in New York City than in Israel. God will yet regather his people to their land. Now, this is very important. Because the new covenant becomes now the outline for the rest of the Bible. And here are the three parts of the new covenant that are really shared over and over again throughout these four chapters, chapter 30 through 33. The the new covenant consists of three things. The regathering of the Jews back to their land. The regeneration of their hearts. God will give them a new heart and forgive their sin. And then the reestablishment of the kingdom to Israel. That branch of David will sit upon the throne and rule the kingdom forever. Write those down. Those are the three R's of the new covenant. And that is what the rest of the Bible is all about. The city's in shambles. They're about to be sacked. The old covenant was not able to save them. So God institutes a new covenant. He will regather them to the land. There through the blood of Jesus, he will regenerate their hearts. And one day soon, he will reestablish the kingdom to Israel. And that's what the rest of the Bible is all about. Verse 15 is an interesting prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rama was near Bethlehem and was Nebuchadnezzar's staging area where he brought the captives before deporting them to Babylon. And it was a sight of bitter weeping. Mothers gathered there and saw their children taken off in shackles. This verse, though, is also quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, to refer to King Herod's slaughter of the innocent babies of Bethlehem, you remember, in an attempt to snuff out the Messiah, King Herod executed the males two years old and younger, and again, Rama was the site of much weeping. One day, though, God will end their tears, and He will replace the weeping of Ramah with joy and rejoicing. Another reference to the Messiah is in verse 22. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Before the coming of Jesus, many of the Jewish rabbis understood this verse to refer to the virgin birth. One rabbi writes, Messiah is to have no earthly father. Another writes, the birth of Messiah will be without defect. The birth of Messiah will be like that of no other man. And a third offers this interpretation. The birth of Messiah will be like the dew of the Lord, his drops on the grass, without the action of a man. And it's interesting, the virgin birth prophesied in another place other than just Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 33 provides the kernel of the new covenant. The reason that this new deal was needed. The old covenant failed because it was dependent upon our own performance. And this is where God promises. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Under the Old Covenant, God's commands were written on stone tablets. But under the New Covenant, God does an incredible thing. He writes His commands, His intentions, His desires upon our hearts. He embeds them into our very nature. He makes His will our will. That's incredible. And suddenly, my most natural instincts are now to love God and to love others. I may stumble, I may fall, but God has put it in my heart To love. To love Him. To love you. And that's how you know you're a Christian. As we learned this morning, we become the kids who make straight A's without having to study. Under the law, we were limited to sheet music. But under the new covenant, God gives us all the ability to play by ear. We hear the song of God in our hearts. The new covenant also guarantees God's kid a first-hand relationship with their Heavenly Father. No priest is any longer needed to mediate. Now we can dial God direct. Understand, a covenant sets forth the terms of a relationship. And on the cross, Jesus died for more than just our forgiveness. He died to establish a whole new basis for our interaction with God rather than have to earn God's favor through our performance over and over, rather than have to merit it through our own good works, we can come to God then and now by faith in His Son's performance. That's why we know we are always accepted, because it's by faith alone, not of works. Verses 35 and 36 add the exclamation point, As sure as the sun lights up the day and the moon the night, God will be faithful to fulfill his promises to Israel. Is God through with Israel? Absolutely not. United States policy toward Israel may change from month to month. But every new sunrise testifies to God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. Every other nation on earth will come and go, but Israel will remain forever. In chapter 32, Jeremiah makes a strange purchase. Ladies, you think your husbands have made some strange purchases? Nothing like Jeremiah. He invests in some very unlikely real estate. You see, at the time, Jerusalem is under siege. The Babylonians are about to break through the walls. Jerusalem is on the verge of foreign occupation. Jeremiah is in prison. When the Lord speaks to him and tells him to buy a field owned by his uncle Hanamiel, he pays the price, he takes the deed. He even has it officially and legally sealed. But understand, this field was probably already occupied by Babylonians. Why would Jeremiah buy a piece of property he couldn't possibly possess? You see, God was making a point. He bought the land in faith knowing that one day the Jews would return and occupy it again. And in verse 17, Jeremiah makes his famous profession of faith. He says to God, there is nothing too hard for you. On the cross, Jesus also purchased a field. He bought the whole world and he had the deed sealed until a later day. And John foresees that day in Revelation chapter 5 where Jesus takes the scroll or that title deed to the earth which he purchased on the cross and he begins to loose the seals on it and in doing so takes possession of what he purchased. Today the earth is overrun with Babylonians. Wicked men have possession. But we need to model Jeremiah's faith. We need to invest in the future. We need to take our lives and spend them on kingdom purposes. We need to live our lives for Jesus today knowing that in the end his kingdom will come. We will possess the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Again, God confirms this new deal he makes with his people in verses 40 and 41. He says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. In chapter 33, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And in response, God goes on to describe the blessings that he will lavish upon the Jews when they return to the land. I believe that this is also a promise we can take to heart. That God will reveal his will to us. That he wants to show us great and mighty things. Guys, whenever you open God's word, always expect him to speak. Whenever you open his word, get on your knees because God wants to bless you. God wants to show you truths. He wants to show you great and mighty things. God's description of their future blessings culminate with the mention of their source. Verses 15 and 16 remind us of the branch from the family tree of David. And here again, we find the other name for Jesus, Jehovah to or the Lord, our righteousness. David will have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever, and his name is Jesus. Let me close with one final thought. God's promises are sure. Throughout the whole chapters tonight, the message has been God is faithful. Even when circumstances are chaotic, even when it looks like this is the end, God will fulfill his promises towards you. It reminds me of the little boy who was asked how much money he had. He says, I have five dollars. His friend disagreed. He said, man, he said, I looked in your wallet and you only had one dollar. But the little boy answered. Yes, you're right. I only have one dollar now, but my dad promised me four dollars when I get home tonight, which means I have five dollars. And hey, we have a promise from our Father in heaven. And that promise is money in the bank. You can trust it. For God is faithful to his promises. We thank you for that, Lord. We praise you. And tonight, Lord, we just want to give you the glory you deserve. For you are a faithful God and there is nothing too hard for you. Thank you that your thoughts toward us are good. That you have for us a future and a hope. And that no matter how bleak our situation is tonight. You have a plan that's glorious and wonderful. And we can trust you. Help us to seek your face with all our hearts. In Jesus' name. And everyone said? God bless you and you're dismissed.